the official podcast for the Australian Podiatry Association. This is where we talk about issues affecting podiatrists and their patients, as well as a range of broader issues. My name is Annette. I'm the CPD manager with the Australian Podiatry Association and your host for today's episode. Today, we're talking paediatric and autoimmune dermatoses. And we're joined by podiatrist, wound care consultant, and dermatoses-loving, all-round fun guy, Joseph Frankel. Welcome, Joseph. Thanks, Annette. Great to be here. Uh, love the uh, derm joke. There'll be plenty more puns, hopefully, throughout to keep you entertained and engaged. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm going to disclose up front that uh, Joseph has delivered some workshops and webinars for the association before today. We do know each other quite well, so we will keep to try the try and uh, keep our our foot jokes to a minimum. Um, So Joseph, uh, I know, of course, but I'm just going to share with our audience, you are highly qualified, having completed both a Bachelor of Podiatry and Master of Science, focusing on wound healing and tissue repair. And you also have a Diploma of General Dermatology. And this unique combination of qualifications enables you to treat a broad scope of foot dermatological and wound issues. So we're, we're really excited you were able to, to join us today. Awesome. Now, well, yep. No, don't no, sorry about that for cutting you off. That's what no, happens good. in podcasts. <laughs> all good. What I was, what I was going to say was I'm, I'm just glad that uh, I don't have to screen share with you <laughs> to tell you to avert your eyes from all the gross dermatoses that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> well, actually on that now, you and I know I'm not a podiatrist, so some of today's terminology and some of the conditions we'll discuss may not be uh, too well known to me. So I'm just going to flag that ahead of time if I slip up on any of my pronunciations. Um, but let, look, let's kick off. And um, we're talking paediatric dermatoses, which can be some of the more common presentations in podiatry clinics for children aged under 16. And the incidence and severity of the dermatoses can be influenced by things like the seasons, geographical area, clothing materials, lotions and soaps, and and in some cases, even, you know, certain food groups. So, you know, I, I always think that podiatrists are quite well placed to assist parents in identifying things like fungal, bacterial and viral infections in their child's feet or, or lower limbs or, or conditions such as dermatitis, psoriasis, and as we're covering today, even, you know, autoimmune and connective tissue disorders. Yet, I, uh, that's why we're here again discussing this is how much do we really know? How much do we really understand about skin conditions in kids under 16 and how to treat them in some cases, even treating them differently to adults. So, you know, there's, I think we're going to have a a broad range of things that we can discuss. And, you know, Joseph, I am a parent of a, a smelly, sweaty rugby playing teenager I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate uh, when I ask, what is the importance of the phrase socks before jocks with, with teens and tinier? I've, I've heard that and I thought we might just start off with a, something light today. Yes. Uh, another thing we have in common, I've actually got two teenage sons and um, yeah, so I, I can definitely relate. Uh, sometimes showering is optional for certain uh, uh, groups of people. Um, socks before jocks, 
is basically a reference to the idea that tinea and fungal infections can actually spread from one part of the body to the other. And so what we know is that when tinea infects the foot, it can also infect the groin, the armpit, other areas that are basically moist and dirty. And so when you encourage your teen or even yourself to put your socks on before you put your undies on, there's a lower likelihood of transmission between the two. We also know that when it comes to treating fungal infections, that um, if we can take a, a broad approach, a, a systemic approach, not just with the actual medication itself, but also identifying other sources of fungi, that's important. What, what I find a common denominator is when someone comes in with the fungal infection on their foot, not only do they likely have a fungal infection elsewhere, which doesn't necessarily mean that you need to ask your patient anything particularly personal, but it does mean that it's worthwhile identifying additional sources of fungi within the household. So that could be other members. There's normally, and this is quite a topical phrase, a super spreader within a household or a particular environment where one individual tends to be more fungal than others. And so if you're treating um, a teenager, then you're probably best suited to treat the entire family. And a really simple tip that I've got is to wash high germ areas with an antimicrobial product. So there's uh, something that we use in podiatry circles called MicroShield, and it comes in MicroShield 2 and MicroShield 4. And there actually, if you look at the actual container, you can see that um, it can be used as antibacterial pre-surgical scrub. So what I've done in the past is I've actually supplied my patients with a five liter huge pump container of it um, to get them to wash their feet and other infected areas. So yeah, definitely um, another, another thing to consider is um, if you're concerned about infestation in, in clothing, then it's worthwhile washing underwear, socks, and even singlets and, and other undergarments separately on a slightly hotter cycle because we know that fungi cannot live when it's a very hot environment. So just a few little ah, tips. Ah, that's, yes. that's a good tip. Okay. Yes, yes. So, yeah, fungus fungus likes moist. It doesn't like dry. Yeah. Ah, and living in Queensland as we do, well, not you but me, it's uh, it can be a challenge, let me tell you. Absolutely. So, look, changing focus a little here but still on another interesting phrase we hear from time to time, although this one was new to me. Feet like crumpets. I understand this refers to a bacterial infection that a patient can have on their feet, yet, I mean, I had not heard of it. So I'd just be interested to know, you know, how, how does this present in children and, and what are the treatment options? So feet, feet like crumpets or crumpet foot, as it was colloquially known as throughout COVID. Actually, the APOD A's Katrina Richards was uh, interviewed by the ABC on it. Big shout out to Katrina. I actually went to uni with her and we just celebrated our 16-year graduation anniversary. So we're officially 16 old. 16 years, yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, no comment, no comment. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so so uh, congrats, uh, graduating class of 2004 from La Trobe University. Still going strong. So crumpet foot is... Uh, essentially a bacterial infection called pitted keratolysis. So the, um, the actual phrase itself, the, um, and, and this is common across most dermatoses, they're actually descriptive. So pitted means pits and keratolysis means that the actual keratin, which is the major skin protein throughout the dermis and the epidermis is actually broken down. So it literally looks like crumpets. 
And the driver of it, particularly this COVID year, was um, UGG um, <laughs> itis. So people were just wearing um, slippers and closed shoes for too long. And that oh, was- UGG boot feet. There you oh, go. I've heard the term Ugg exactly. boot feet, but exactly. I hadn't ter- heard the term feet like crumpets. Exactly. So crumpet foot, I know, it, it, you know, it, it just makes you feel like running to the fridge and, uh, you know, smearing some butter on something delicious. But so no. basically, no, not quite. Okay. So, <laughs> well, we, we've gone, we've gone from mushrooms to crumpets. There you go. It's, it's all got a food theme here and um, no doubt there'll be other food references. It's got to get better. Gotta, absolutely. It's got to be on absolutely. the up. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, 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 maybe put down your coffee when you're listening to this, but um, so basically what happens is because of that um, hyperhydrotic, so that excess sweaty state, the native bacteria that exist on the skin start to infect at deeper skin levels and actually break it down and cause these little pit-like uh, craters. It's almost moon-like, cheese-like, et cetera. But the way to treat it is to remove the source of the actual um, cause. So in other words, stop sweating. So um, get the individual out into open shoes, barefoot where practical. You can try antiperspirants, antimicrobials, particularly antibacterials can be effective. We're, we're talking about teenagers. Some pimple creams that contain benzoyl peroxide can be very effective on it. Um, a, a podiatry friend of mine who's up in Bendigo, she swears by a combination of 70% alcohol with 3% salicylic acid in it as a very mild astringent and keratolytic. But there's one treatment that I've been having a lot of popularity with um, lately, and it's actually related to what we were discussing previously with fungal infections, and that's called iontophoresis. Iontophoresis is a mild electrical current that de- destimulates sweat gland function. So how it works practically is you stick your foot in a bucket with a very small amount of water and this particular machine at a very low current, um, your foot sits on top of that and it dries it out. Yeah. A, a, a good brand on the market is called Dermadry. That's D-E-R-M-A-D-R-Y. It's, it, it's relatively inexpensive based on the value that you'll get out of it because it lasts for ages. But iontophoresis is very practical and simple and that stops the sweating Ergo, it stops the bacterial infection. So, yeah. mm, mm. And of course, don't go back to wearing Ugg boots around the house. No, chuck the Uggs. <laughs> mm, mm. I think that's a good tip as well. So I guess, you know, um, I, I've definitely seen um, in, in Queensland uh, a persistent condition that we can't ignore and, and we're not going to ignore in our conversation today. And, and obviously pods see them quite frequently. And we are talking, of course, of Verrucas. I know this particular topic is often debated and there are many, many different treatment options. Before our listeners today, Joseph, what is your opinion on ilf- in infiltration techniques such as the, the Faulkner puncture compared to, say, you know, topical regimes and have you used both and do you have a preference? Um, The answer is yes, I have used both and I don't particularly have a preference because the thing to consider when it comes to all pediatric ward cases is 50% clear within six months and 90% clear within two years. So even if you're doing nothing, there is a very high likelihood it will self-resolve. And a lot of patients, when you ask them, myself included, I remember having pediatric warts that just literally disappeared overnight. So we, so really to answer the question, we need to get to the core of what warts are. And they're 
essentially uh, viral infections that um, block immune function from recognizing what they are. And so therefore the treatment is immunostimulatory. And that's why Falconers, or, I don't even know how to pronounce it, whether it's Falconers or Faulkners. Anyway, we'll just call it stabbing the wart repeatedly with something sharp. What that does is when you stab at something repeatedly, you stimulate an immune response. And so the result of that is a higher likelihood of resolution. So I, I typically use Falconers when it's a chronic wart. It's very painful and other treatments have failed, but I generally don't use it as my first line because you need to be selective in how you um, apply it because it can be painful. And obviously you, you do it under local anesthetic first. You don't just say, look over there and start stabbing them repeatedly. Um, but the other techniques I use, I've been dabbling a lot more with natural techniques, which um, have been uh, quite successful. So uh, um, I like to, I literally call it fruit and veg. We're, we're keeping with the food theme here, Annette. Okay. So Let's so, go with it. Fruit and veg. So three, three of my favorites um, in order of preference and in order of um, strength, are lemon essential oil, uh, garlic, raw crushed garlic, and banana skins. And I'll briefly talk about each of those. So lemon essential oil, relatively inexpensive. You get it from a health food store or a pharmacy and, and it's, um, um, it's a local irritant and it, it also bleaches the skin slightly. So you do see a physical change within it, but you just apply it twice a day, just neat, undiluted directly to the wart. Um, with crushed garlic, you, you, you just get a clove of garlic, crush it, put it on the wart, put a bandaid on and go to bed and repeat nightly until the blister forms. And then the blister is that immunostimulatory part. And banana skin sort of dries things out a little bit. It's a bit of a craft activity because you've got to cut the piece of banana and put it on and, uh, but bananas are high in potassium and potassium reacts with skin. It, it oxidizes it and turns a bit brown. So there's somewhat of a psychological component to warts as well. But um, mm. yeah, so so when it comes to warts, my, my general advice is if it's not getting better, try something else. But if it's taking a long time and it's not getting better, it's worthwhile exploring whether there's some sort of immunosuppression going on. And so the, the body's just not responding or perhaps it's not a wart. There are other dermatoses and lesions that look like warts that are not like warts. So a bit further investigation is warranted if you're outside of that six to 24 month time frame, particularly in a pediatric case. Mm, I had no idea they could be so persistent. Yeah, I, I, I've never met a wart that I haven't fixed though. So, you know, you, you've got to keep going. I actually saw a patient this morning, actually, who it took us two and a half years and seven different treatments, including the ones we mentioned, to finally get relief for her. And she's she stayed wart-free thereafter. And she's she's not a kid. She's she's an adult. So it's, it's more difficult to treat warts in adults. So you threw everything at it by the sounds of quite it. Quite literally, yeah. She, and, you know, and, and the fruit bowl. Yeah, literally, you know, we tried howling at the full moon, you know, we tried, you know, you know, we, I almost referred it to a shaman, you know, it was really getting, you know, next level kind of stuff, but we got there in the end. So, so persistence is key and a lot of reassurance for your patients and particularly in pediatric cases for the parents, but it linking into what I was saying before about the infectiousness of it, it's worthwhile as well, assessing whether other family members, other super spreaders and so, you know, basic sort of hygiene stuff, like trying to keep the wart covered if it's in a high contact area, giving the shower a bit of a, a spray down with bleach in between uses, not sharing towels, basic stuff will, will stop the spread. So 
where I am in Queensland, I'm not too sure about what things are like in Victoria today, but we only have to look outside. It's, it's summer. It's hot. Many of us are either at the beach or heading there already. We might be staying away from home, camping. It's a pretty normal scenario, you know, for, for, for our kids to, to run around barefoot uh, in, in summer. But this also means they can pick up, you know, nasties that affect the skin. What infections do we need to be aware of from things like insect bites, mozzies, midges, and even in some cases, scabies? Mm. Yeah, summer, you, you tend to see an uptick in, in insect um, bites and, and other um, infestations. So scabies is considered an infestation. It just sounds grosser when you it's call it. It's a horrible word. A horror- I, I almost hesitate to say it. I know, it, it really is, you know. Um, but the other, the other thing to consider when, when running around barefoot is foreign bodies. And, and I see every summer, I see some sort of foreign body. The most common foreign body I actually see in the human foot is hair, actually, often from men shaving in the bathroom, which is quite interesting, um, which can happen on teenage boys, depending on where they're shaving and what they're shaving. Uh, but um, often um, the, the next most common foreign body is actually plant matter. So running around barefoot can be dangerous but insect bites most of the time are pretty benign except when they start to lead to secondary infections and that's when you know spider bites depending on where you are um you can get um allergenic responses to um, bees and, and and even mosquitoes and wasps so it's it's worthwhile being careful when you're in areas where there's a lot of plant matter around not just for the foreign body but also that's where insects tend to to lurk but uh, down in Victoria, as if things weren't bad enough with COVID, we've got a very rare type of um, ulcer, which can turn into necrotizing fasciitis called a Borrelli ulcer, also known as a Bansdale ulcer. It's particularly prevalent around the Mornington and Bellarine peninsulas. So basically either side of Port Phillip Bay within Melbourne. And it's a type of bacterial infection that goes completely undetected until it literally causes a massive crater virtually down to like the deep tissues, like almost like you can see muscle type stuff. So it's, it's what we call a, a notifiable, and it's looking horrified right now. It's what we call a notifiable condition, a bit like COVID. So if someone has it, it must be reported. Um, so for those of us down in Victoria, I, I don't think it's outside of Victoria, but for those of us down in Victoria, if you've got a patient with an atypical wound, that's just not quite healing and they're asymptomatic and it's getting a bit bigger, send it off for further testing and biopsy. Um, and that's actually spread through mosquitoes. So, yeah. So I was so, just going to ask yeah. how on earth are people getting these? It's a mosquito, it's, it's a mosquito bite, you know, and there's, so around this time of year, you know, uh, Melbourne and, and, and different parts of Australia have different seasons. I know the wet season in Queensland can be sort of late summer, you know, Melbourne can have a sort of, you know, strange, hot and sticky weather just for a day or two. So um, my, my advice overall is keep an eye on everything. If, um, if possible, try to wear shoes outside, even if it's just sandals or thongs, which, you know, we don't recommend for other podiatric reasons, but certainly down at the beach for protective reasons. Yeah, I, I think it's worthwhile. And even when you're in the water itself, try to swim and, and, and splash around areas that don't have coral or rocks because a cut in the water can lead to all sorts of nasty things. You know, friends of mine have had cellulitis and other nasty infections just from stepping on a rock. 
So yeah, stay safe at the beach. And uh, of course, sunscreen is essential, even on the foot. I've been the recipient of a sunburned foot on many occasions. Maybe it's because my feet are size 13. So it's a pretty big area to, to target, but yeah, certainly safety at all times. And when traveling and when you're in hotels, if you uh, maybe it's worthwhile bringing a spare set of sheets because scabies and bed bugs can be common in uh, accommodation. They can spread pretty easily and scabies is nasty. Very nasty. Yeah. I Delicious. don't think I'm going on holiday at all this year now. <laughs> Joseph, thank you so much. Staycation. Staycation this year. Absolutely. <laughs> staycation. That's right. But it does bring me to my next question. And I want to focus on that rash that might not be itchy. And we've seen it in our children. Oh, it's itchy. It's itchy. You know, we, we my arm, my leg, you know, my foot is itchy. How do you know, how do you figure out the difference between, say, eczema and contact dermatitis? Mm. It's, a, it's a great question. And the spectrum within eczema and dermatitis is enormous. And they're, they're somewhat synonymous. You know, there's a bit of conjecture as to whether we call them, whether we call it all eczema, whether we call it dermatitis. So for argument's sake, I'll just call it all dermatitis because it's descriptive. It's inflammation of the dermis. But the thing to, to note with, with dermatitis is there's different variants of it and there's acute, subacute and chronic. So the acute and subacute variants of it, so with a contact dermatitis, for example, or an allergic dermatitis, they tend to be incredibly itchy. But the chronic variants or the sort of subclinical, I've got a bit of redness kind of thing, they're most of the time, you know, the ones that I think you're referring to earlier. But the core of, of, of any eczema or dermatitis is some sort of allergen. And that allergen is either internal, so it's genetic or it's dietary, for example, or it's external. So it's something you've come into contact with. So we can broadly call them endogenous or exogenous, but they're, they're really reactive inflammatory skin conditions with that allergenic trigger. So linking into what we were talking before about water safety, you know, a, a friend of mine, he didn't quite get the chlorine balance right in his pool last year, and he ended up with spa folliculitis. So there's all sorts of interesting contact dermatoses and dermatitis that you can get from not enough chlorine, too much chlorine. A common one I see in summer is people that wear nickel um, shoes. So they have like little buckles, like sandals that have a little strappy thing that's got the metal nickel in it that can cause um, a contact dermatitis or an allergenic dermatitis, as well as different types of plastics and rubbers can, can stimulate an, an allergenic reaction. But um, interestingly, the most common allergen that I come across is it, linking in before what we're talking about is, is actually just the hypohidrosis itself. So when a foot is particularly sweaty, even just regular household items can cause an allergenic trigger simply because the skin is more broken down. So it's worthwhile creating good skin integrity wherever possible with good hygiene and socks and shoes, et cetera, to reduce the likelihood of some sort of allergenic trigger. But if the dermatitis is persisting, if it's not getting better, if it looks angry, but it's asymptomatic, then it's worthwhile investigating a little bit further because the treatments we have are basically just immunosuppressive in the form of cortisone and too much cortisone can lead to other issues. So I think really, even though we haven't quite finished yet, the take-home message is keep an eye on stuff and, you know, take photos of things. I mean, we're, we're tethered to our phones these days. So take a photo and that way you can see how something's progressing. You can mm. take a photo, you know, once a day, every couple of days. And when you bring that into the podiatrist, that's automatically giving them 
the history of it. Yeah. Yeah, that would be super helpful. A, a recent uh, a recent post in the APOD A Podiatry Peds Facebook group, and just quickly for those listeners who may not know of them, the APOD A has a number of special interest groups that you can join on Facebook. Next time you're on Facebook, like the Australian Podiatry Association Facebook page, then take a look at groups and you're going to find more than, you know, 10 special interest groups for you uh, there to join. But this post, Joseph, uh, focused on thick toenails in smaller children. Uh, obviously, we see thick toenails more often in adults, but when when should we be a little bit more wary and less, oh, you know, don't worry, it'll be fine, with thick toenails in small children? So the conditions that we see in small children are almost the same as we see in adults. The only difference is what the driver is. So whether it's something genetic or whether it's something traumatic or whether it's something infectious. And those are the sort of three broad categories we see. But we, it, we should be concerned when it's just not getting better as part of a natural history. So there's one condition that I see um, in a reasonable amount when I work at the Skin Health Institute down in Melbourne with a bunch of dermatologists, we basically co-manage complex nail pathologies. And what we see, particularly in adolescent girls, is something called acquired congenital malalignment of the great toenail. It's a bit of a misnomer because how can something be both acquired and congenital, but that's what they've named it. And what tends to happen is the, the nail just gets this sort of tortoise shell and, and hypertrophic and, and on a corksic and on a co-gryphotic appearance. So it's a sort of real big, thick, fat, twisted, deformed nail. And so if you've got a kid that's sort of two, three years of age, that's got something of that nature that isn't correcting itself as their toes actually grow, then that's, it's worthwhile having a, a bit more of an exploration on that as well. Um, and that's also... Um, part of the treatment as well, because most kids typically grow out of dermatoses. I mean, eczema is one example that, you know, most kids with acute eczema just tend to grow out of it. But yeah, um, it, it's not unheard of to have kids that have onychomycosis as well, fungal infections. Occasionally kids can even get, um, we were talking about eczema before, you can get eczema of the nail unit, paronychia, which is part of that as well. So it's worthwhile taking a, a broad dermatological and medical history when it comes to investigating nail pathologies. But if things aren't changing over a natural history of, you know, four to six months, if it's an ongoing issue, it's worthwhile investigating a little bit further. And that could just be, you know, a case of referring to a dermatologist or even getting some pathology testing. You never know what lurks under a nail, Annette. You, oh, you make it sound so... <laughs> so thought-provoking <laughs> I tell you and well look we're almost out of time today Joseph um, and I do think that we could chat for much longer but um, let's wrap up our, our conversation today with a topic um, a, a query if you like that we've received from CPD feedback and that is autoimmune connective tissue dermatoses in, in children and in particular how challenging it might be for pods to correctly screen and triage uh, autoimmune or connective tissue patients with peripheral stigmata. Uh, now, obviously, I'm not sure where this sort of, you know, comes from and, and um, I think maybe if you could give a good background for our listeners as well, that would be handy. 
Absolutely. Firstly, I love the word stigmata. That's a massively underused word. We must use that more often. Just rolls off the tongue. Um... <laughs> not, not one we use often and in context, very, very impactful. Absolutely. Okay. So let's start with autoimmune diseases to begin with and connective tissue. So there, there's a bit of overlap between the two. Autoimmune essentially just means the body's attacking itself for reasons we don't understand. So there are not too many uh, dermatological specific autoimmune conditions. They're mostly something more systemic that tends to manifest in the skin. And if we take a broad look at dermatology in the skin in, uh, in general, Often um, systemic conditions supersede and manifest in skin. So diabetes is one example. So if a person has a diabetic foot ulcer, it's really an endocrinological condition that manifests in the skin. And the same goes for autoimmune and connective tissue disorders. So Crohn's disease, for example, which is a disease of the gut, um, has a lot of links with autoimmune conditions such as psoriasis. And so people with Crohn's can get something called pyoderma gangrenosum, which is, uh, you know how I said before that like d dermatoses and, and dermatological um, terminology is descriptive. Well, this is completely a misnomer because pyoderma means that like you get pus in the skin, which you don't. And gangrenosa okay. means gangrene. So it's neither. It's basically, it's basically a non-healing wound on your leg if you scratch yourself. Um, and people with Crohn's can get acne type folliculitis and erythema multiform, which is a sort of weird, you know, red kind of shape. And, and what's interesting is if you actually look um, histologically and, and just macroscopically at what Crohn's looks like, it looks like red inflamed ulcerative tissue. And so that's what I mean about that sort of systemic link between different things. But there's a few um, derm-specific connective tissue disorders, um, things like um, scleroderma. Um, and that can have, there's a local form of scleroderma called morphia which is not less fear, more fear, uh, which is basically a type of scarring where there's too much collagen and that can result in sort of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And connective tissue disorders, there's a lot of overlap because connective tissue is basically collagen and the skin is basically just protein. And collagen, if you have a look at us from a tissue perspective, we're, we're more collagen than anything else which is why like so many influencers on Insta and other socials are, you know, just eating collagen, which is, you know, just have a good balanced diet. It'll probably just achieve the same thing. But anyway, it's another podcast discussion, but there's other things out there like lupus, um, dermatomyositis, which is quite an interesting one. But the thing to remember um, is that most um, systemic connective tissue and autoimmune disorders don't manifest in the feet. Probably the exception to that would be scleroderma. There's a phenomenon within scleroderma called CREST, which uh, is an acronym for calcinosis, which is um, basically calcium deposition within tissue. So similar to gout, Raynaud's, which we know all about, seeing as we've just come out of, you know, uh, winter and uh, chillblain season, esophageal issues, which is not really relevant to us, and sclerodactyly, which basically means that the hands and the toes can get a bit clawed, and telangiectasia, which is um, spider veins, which goes hand in hand with Raynaud's as well. So I think the take-home message is uh, when it comes to specifically autoimmune connective tissue disorders, if you've got a dermatosis that's just a bit odd, it doesn't look like anything you've ever seen before. Their symptoms are either exaggerated or non-existent. And if it's a weird rash that's a bit sort of unexplained, then investigate a little bit further, you know, pick up the phone, speak to their GP, write them a letter, you know, um, 
probe a little bit further into their medical history because many people have connective tissue disorders that they're unaware of. So for example, there's something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is sort of hypermobility. People don't know they have it in in some Mm. cases. A friend of mine had it. Shelley found out when she started having heart issues in her thirties, you know, there's, so it's worthwhile if, if things seem atypical, investigate a bit further. And I know down in Victoria and probably the case nationally, particularly for genetic connective tissue disorders, there's a whole database where you can get free genetic testing. It's as simple as a blood test and they can see exactly what's wrong with you. When it comes to anything medical and certainly dermatological, the more we know, the more we can fix. So, yeah. Thank you, Joseph, for being able to join us today. Um, Sadly, it is all we have time for. Um, There is just so much more that we could explore on the topic, um, which, of course, brings me to the webinar that you will be presenting um, via the APODA on the 2nd of February, 2021. I can't believe we're saying 2021. I know, I know. I'm, I know. Quite, I'm quite grateful we are <laughs> starting to say uh, 2021. I can't wait to see the back of 2020 uh, <sighs> like so many others. But um, your, your webinar in, in February is going to delve a little bit deeper. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's paediatric dermatoses. Stinky, sweaty, germy, and scaly. Yep. Uh, which so it'll be a four-part, um, one-hour webinar with lots of lovely photos, um, and we'll go into a little bit greater depth of the things that we discussed with um, treatment regimes and and uh, further discussion on it as well. So I, I think you guys will enjoy it. A great title, Joseph, and uh, I can only imagine the pictures. Uh, So uh, really looking forward to that. And if you're keen to join Joseph on that webinar, head to podiatry.org.au, go into education and into CPD events to register uh, for that webinar. The webinar is open to any podiatrists who are keen to learn more on this topic. Now, a big thank you to our listeners for joining us on today's episode. A big thank you to you, Joseph. Thank you. And great to be here. Always great to connect with the A-Pod A and you as well, Annette. Well, the Australian Podiatry Association's podcast continues to grow and we really appreciate the support from our listeners. Don't forget to check out our website, podiatry.org.au, as a source for ongoing updates on a range of topics for podiatrists. And also, when you can, take a look at our social media feeds at facebook.com forward slash Australian Podiatry Association or Twitter at APODA underscore national. In the meantime, stay safe and take care and have a great summer, everybody. Bye for now.